Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Saturday Slam and Jam. Hosted by Andrew Schlicht with Alex Spears. How about we can just watch basketball? That's a man's jam! I like that idea. Live from Oklahoma. We click. With questions and participants from all around the world. Anthony Edwards! Put that on a poster! Whether you're flipping your flapjacks, tending to your yard, or just sipping your coffee, get ready, sit back, relax. It's the Saturday Slam and Jam. Back is, I missed this shot, I walk away, I'm still a chump. Here's Andrew. Welcome to the Saturday Slam and Jam. I'm your host, Andrew Schlecht. Go to theathletic.com slash NBA show and get The Athletic for $3.99 a month. Alex, this week we have the conference finals and the NBA lottery. It's a week of hope and it's a week of heartbreak. Those who drew high picks on Tuesday's lottery are riding high. And if you're the Thunder or Magic, you're left pretty disappointed. Uh, But this week, a team that is in the conference finals... The Phoenix Suns experienced all that hope and heartbreak through the last decade, and they're emerging as a contender. Alex, what are, have you have you enjoyed watching the Phoenix Suns? I know they lost last night, but let's overlook that. They've been great. They've been great, and it's been a blast to watch them because I, I really believe in in the lifespan of a fan, there is nothing better than watching your young and up and coming team finally break through. It it is just like. It is nirvana. It is basketball nirvana when that happens. And it doesn't happen that often, like where it happens right. this early. And it's happening twice this season with the Hawks and the Suns. And that is just yep. like my favorite example of, of the NBA. That's my favorite thing in the NBA. It's so great. And the last time the Phoenix Suns were in the conference finals, they were led by Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire. They had a young Robin Lopez. Jason Richardson was on that team. Grant Hill, a young Goran Dragic. But that was 2009-10 season. That was a long time ago. Uh, After that, Amari left. He left for the Knicks in 2010. And then I had totally forgotten this, but they essentially just replaced Amari with Hito Turkoglu and tried to run it back. And it did not work. And it had (laughs) not been working really up until this season. So I thought it would be fun to go through their draft history from 2012 through today and just... Talk about where were they in the draft, uh, what what position were they, and then who they drafted, and just talk about the hits and misses along the way to get to the conference finals. Uh, spoiler alert, lots of misses early on. But we'll start with the 2012 draft. They drafted point guard Kendall Marshall. And this was some draft analysis from Bleacher Report after this draft. If Steve Nash returns to the Suns roster next season, one of his key jobs will be to mentor Marshall as he develops. However, I don't see the two-time MVP returning. Phoenix can now hand the reign to the new point guard who emulates Nash in a lot of ways. The Suns' number 13 pick could very well, very, very well may replace the number 13th pick. He certainly had his moments. I mean, he, did. he, had, that, he had that one season with the Lakers. He did. Where it felt like after, something was happening. But after, it I, 
Yeah, after I think they declined like one of his option years in Phoenix, they were like, okay, this is a problem. Uh, fast forward 2013, number, this is basically where like, the kind of tanking begins with them. They get the fifth, they draw the fifth pick in the draft. They're hopeful that they can grab a nice player. And they draft Alex Len with the fifth pick in the 2013 NBA draft. Here's some draft analysis from Bleacher Report after that, after that pick was made. Phoenix made a mistake by selecting Len when its turn came around. But why? It's because both Kentucky big man Nerlens Noel and Kansas winger Ben McLemore were still on the board. McDonough may have been... Uh, must have seen something he really liked about Lynn because drafting the sophomore center out of Maryland was a confident move with more highly acclaimed talent still available. Noel was many times ranked as the most talented player in the draft and McLemore was the best fit to fill Phoenix needs at the scoring two guard. He's right. This draft analysis was really good until we just started like, praising Ben McLemore and <laughs> Norland's Noel. But I remember feeling that way at the time too. Uh, so it's just, it's just, to me, it's just so fun to read through old draft analysis and just how silly we all look. And I'm not trying to like say that these are the only people that look silly, man. Like, man, like I've looked like a moron after some of these drafts and it's just fun to kind of dig back through. That one, I don't even blame them. I mean, 2013 was such a mess. I remember people being, certain people being high on Alex Len and being very yeah. excited. It wasn't crazy that he was in the conversation at five, it was more like Noel is falling. Why is Noel falling? Somebody has to take this guy. Mm -hmm. 2014, they draft TJ Warren at 14. They draft Tyler Ennis at 18. And then they draft Bogdan Bogdanovich at 27. So this is a pretty interesting draft. And the analysis here is like, actually pretty sound. I dug through a lot of different articles to see, but people are, the basic analysis was like, yeah, TJ Warren is like a, a really good score, a bucket getter. Tyler Ennis is like maybe a backup point guard. <laughs> one of the, one person wrote, hopefully he's not Kendall Marshall 2.0. Well, turns out he kind of was. And then Hoops Habit had this little blurb about Bogdanovich that said, this was the value pick for the Suns since Bogdanovich could wind up being Phoenix's best selection in the 2014 NBA draft down the road. Just like, oh, nailed very it. sound, like nailed, nailed that with the analysis. Uh, they, they really did pretty good in that draft. There wasn't a lot of huge mistakes made there, and the Bogdanovich pick was great uh, until they actually cashed in on Bogdanovich, which will which will come soon. Okay, good. I'm 20, glad you're going to go over that trade. Oh, we have to. We absolutely have to. The 2015 draft, Alex, this was the smartest draft for them. This is where they get their guy. This is where they select Devin Booker, and this was the beginning of what will be a contending team. But did you know that it almost didn't happen because they were trying to trade up? This is a tweet from Woj, back when he used to work for Yahoo. The tweet reads, the Suns remain in aggressive pursuit of a move-up in the draft, presumably targeting Frank Kaminsky. League mm. sources tell Yahoo. Wow. <laughs> Just, they, they almost screwed it all up by trading for Frank Kaminsky, because if you continue to go down this road and see all the picks that they made, and obviously it affects them differently, like they don't have the same picks moving forward, but if you miss here, 
boy, like it it could be pretty bleak for the Suns. Uh, so they is a blessing in disguise that they couldn't trade up. It's wild that Frank had so many suitors in that draft because obviously that was the draft where Michael Jordan turns down four firsts from Boston who were trying to get yep. up to get Justice Winslow, but they wanted Frank the Tank so bad they turned it down. Turns out there was another team. There are a lot of teams going after him. Yeah, and they end up getting Kaminsky eventually on their team, who was drafted <laughs> That's ninth. That's true. They end up having Cameron Payne on their team this season, who was drafted 14th. And they ended up having Kelly Oubre as well, who was drafted 15th. So it's just really interesting that they ended up with so many guys kind of in that small range in that particular draft. Uh, so this is from uh, a blog, Valley of the Suns. Patience is a virtue, and the writing may be on the wall for Gerald Green and Reggie Bullock. But even if Devin Booker is not the power forward or center most were expecting, his elite three-point shooting is a skill that will translate to the next level and make him a great long-term asset to the Phoenix Suns. Uh, It's so funny because you read through a lot of this stuff and a lot of the analysis is like, well, it's it's okay that they bring in Devin Booker because Gerald Green might leave. (laughs) Well, and Booker, he was like another in a long line of Kentucky players who, because they were at Kentucky with all these other stars, didn't get to show his full repertoire of, of basketball yep. skills. And so going mm-hmm. into that draft, he was only being thought of as, like, here's a young shooter. Like, that's the only way yep. people were really talking about him. Yep. So they hit there. And then comes maybe the worst year in Phoenix Suns draft history, 2016. They have the fourth pick in the draft, which they select Dragon Bender. And then they trade up to get the eighth pick in Marquise Chris. There was word that the, the Phoenix Suns front office was having such trouble deciding between Bender and Chris that they decided to just try to go for both. And they succeeded. So here's some draft analysis <laughs> from Bleacher Report on Bender. His pick-and-pop skills will work nicely alongside Eric Bledsoe and Brandon Knight. There's no telling how high his ceiling could rise once Phoenix commits to him at the four. Hell yes. We're, we're not even talking about Devin Booker at all. We're talking Eric Bledsoe and Brandon Knight. <laughs> this, was, this was not that long ago, Alex. This was it, not it was that not. long ago. Hey, in general, I support a team. Hey, if they can't decide between two guys, just go get two top, pin, top ten picks. That yeah. in and of itself is a, is a cool move, I would say. It's a power move. Cool. If you're Phoenix, you, a Phoenix fan, that night you must have been feeling so good. Yeah. That you got both these guys. I would be psyched. Uh, here's Bleach, yeah. Here's Bleacher Report on the Chris trade and drafting him. Drafting them together could have been a head-scratching move, except Phoenix barely had to give up anything. It traded the number 13 pick, number 28 selection, and the number 28 selection, and Bogdan Bogdanovich. The vertical tells Sham Sharania, which allows it to keep the backcourt together while improving the front court's prospects. So n- no one was really considering Bogdanovich like a, a big asset at the time when it turns out like he, he is wildly better than anybody that was selected in that draft. They also drafted Tyler Ulyss at 34. Um, but they just kind of gave him away. And then you have just the debacle that occurred. Like you can't. I mean, the Kings just kind of fell into that one. They didn't really know what they had. They ended up paying him great. He was really good in Sacramento, and then they kind of fumbled all over themselves until he's gone. And Well, and, and the other names in that trade, 
Papa G was the guy taken at 13, yeah. and then Scal right. was the guy taken later in the first. But I remember that right. draft because the the consensus was that there's a drop-off after eight. Marquise Chris is the last name in whatever this tier is going to be, and then there's a drop-off. So it seemed like a big deal at the time that the Suns were able to move up into that last spot and take Chris, who some argued that night was falling because he's one of those random yeah. guys that had like gotten hot in the pre-draft process. And it felt like he could go anywhere between, you know, like three or eight because he was a hot name. He ends up going at eight, and it seems like this huge steal for the Suns. Yep. So this is about the time that Devin Booker starts to emerge, and people start to think, oh, okay, they really need to build around Devin Booker. So we get to the 2017 draft. They have the fourth pick in the draft. Lots of options here. Could have had De'Aaron Fox. They draft Josh Jackson at four. So here's some analysis from Sports Illustrated. There was speculation that the Suns could either trade this pick or pair De'Aaron Fox and Devin Booker here. But the Jackson selection addresses a more immediate need. It makes a lot of sense given the young core Phoenix continues to assemble. Jackson will immediately provide toughness and help improve the Suns' defense. Fox was surely tempting, but the thought of Jackson and Devin Booker running on the wings is tantalizing. Grade Ooh. A. Ooh, wow. <laughs> Just and sound at the time, sound analysis. Today, it's just, it's so funny because you say like the draft is a crapshoot and going through this stuff, it, like, it really is. You feel like you know so much at the time of the draft about these players and what they bring and what they will be. And, you know, Josh Jackson, like, ended up playing pretty well for Memphis, but he was a problem in the worst way for Phoenix. Yeah, absolutely. And you look back at that draft, I mean, yeah, Bam and Donovan Mitchell are there at the end of the lottery, but realistically, like, what other name would they have picked? Like, you mentioned De'Aaron Fox. Like, Jonathan Isaac probably would have been, like, the good pick there. Um, But at the time, again, Josh Jackson – like seemed like a great pick. Everyone was all mm-hmm. in on that, and it made sense. Mm-hmm. Totally. 2018, they're bad. Part of it is that Josh Jackson wasn't any good for them, and they didn't really have any a point guard that year for them. They, dra- they get the number one pick in the draft, and they select DeAndre Aiden at one. So this was the analysis from CBS Sports. Aiden is the obvious pick. He's big and strong and has the tools to become a dominant offensive big man. He has the athleticism to become a better defender than he's shown in college. He will fit well next to Devin Booker, but he probably doesn't have the most upside, and he's not the safest bet either. He presents the question of whether you want to build around a big man in today's NBA. Fine analysis. He's turned out great, especially with the way he's played in the playoffs. has been unbelievable. And then in that same draft, this was the, their best year by far. They draft Mikael Bridges. They make a trade. So here's the analysis on that trade on that uh, on that pick. Bridges to the 76ers was perfect. So of course it got traded. The Suns traded away Zaire Smith, a high upside wing who could grow with the team, and a 2021 first rounder via the Heat for one of the older players in this class. Bridges could help their defense though. So it's just funny that they didn't really think it was a great fit for the Suns, which he's been clearly like their fourth best guy this season and just thought of it as just a disaster for the Sixers, which it was. I mean, if this, if that Sixers team, this Sixers team currently had bridges, they probably would still be alive right now. Like he could, he could be their third or fourth best player. And you know, it's interesting that trade, 
you know, they trade for Zaire Smith. But as the bonus, they get a 2021 first-round draft pick, which ended mm-hmm. up being the Miami draft pick, which then became, I believe, Oklahoma City's draft pick this year. I think that's the number 18 pick coming up. Yeah, I think that's right. It's pretty wild. It's taking a long road. 20, 2019, another great year for the Suns. So they had the sixth pick in the draft. They weren't a good team. And they traded back. And they traded the sixth pick, which became Jarrett Culver. And then they acquired Dario Saric and the 11th pick, which was Cam Johnson in that draft. Just what looked like kind of a head-scratching move became the re- like the reason that their bench is any good and the reason that they were a really good regular season team this year. Because without Cam Johnson and Saric, and let's say they just took Jarrett Culver, like how like they don't have a bench. It's go- it's like completely depleted if you don't have those two guys and you take a chance on Culver. They also traded TJ Warren and the 32nd pick which became Casey Apala for cash to Indy, which was like wildly like what are they doing? Like how how could they do that? So many people criticized them all year for that because Warren looked pretty good. But to their credit, TJ Warren had become a problem in the locker room in Phoenix and they just needed to get him gone. And well, so you can look at it today and not criticize it quite as much. On the cam pick, even though that was two years ago, that was such a forward-thinking pick because everyone mm-hmm. acknowledged, everyone acknowledged that Cam Johnson was the best shooter in that draft class. Everyone was saying mm-hmm. that, and yet no one was mocking him above like pick 20. And right. we now know, and we knew then, the importance of shooting in this league and so mm-hmm. when you're at the end of the lottery and maybe you don't feel like there's the, you know, superstar, you know, the super high ceiling guy going with someone with a guaranteed skill, arguably the most important skill in the modern NBA at pick 11 was a pretty forward thinking idea. And, and it's funny how much we bashed that at the time, even though everyone agreed that Cam Johnson was the best shooter in that class. 2019. This was two years ago. Here's the draft analysis. This pick was made by the Suns, who traded 6 for 11 and Dario Saric. The Suns did this because they've got all this youth. Johnson's a guy who's ready to play. But what a stunning move. No one expected them to be expected him to be this high. Johnson was not even one of the 24 players invited to the official draft green room. This was wild to me. Grade D. Ooh. Which like that was the popular analysis of the night. Yeah, for sure. Alex, in 2020, they select Jalen Smith at 10, which was mocked by CBS Sports. They said, a surprise on every level. I don't understand it. I thought I liked Jalen Smith more than most, but I had him in the late teens, but not in the top 10 and not on a team that already had DeAndre Ayton. He's more of a stretch five than a stretch four, and that's simply not a position of need or a great value. But Phoenix does have a history of doing things that don't make a lot of sense. Grade D minus. Just a, a scathing review in which I fully support this one from CBS Sports. Yeah, and obviously this is the draft where Halliburton's sitting right there. He goes at 12. On some level, though, you have to let this play out because James Jones has already proven that he may, might know more than us going forward. So mm-hmm. even though he has not played a lot in his rookie season, and I do have doubts about that fit with Aiton, let's see what happens. Let's give James Jones benefit of the doubt. Executive of the year. we got to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, okay, so just to recap, here's their hits 
in the draft. At 13, they hit on Devin Booker. At number one, they hit on DeAndre Ayton. At 10, they hit on Bridges. At 11, they hit on Cam Johnson. 27, they hit on Bogdanovich, but then I don't know that they even get credit for that because they traded him away. Uh, And then 14, you can say they hit on TJ Warren, although he didn't really work out with them. But I'll still put him in the hit uh, because he is like a good NBA player. Misses at four, Josh Jackson. At four, Dragon Bender. At eight, Marquise Chris. 18, Tyler Ennis. Five, Alex Lynn. 13, Kendall Marshall. And it's funny because we've gone through a couple teams like this. We've gone through the Suns and the Jazz, both of which missed on their top 10 picks. The only top 10 pick that the Suns hit on was DeAndre Ayton. And I guess Bridges is, is the 10th pick. But they hit on the fringes of the lottery, and then they're, they, had, they missed on two picks at four, at eight, and at five. And it's just, it's just funny because you feel like you know what's coming if your team is in the lottery. And if you're a team that drew a top four pick in this current draft, you feel like you know that your team is going to automatically get better from it. But you can look at the history of the Phoenix Suns and know it's not a guarantee. And so it's just it's just fun to go back and look at how did the Phoenix Suns actually get here. And obviously there's lots of trades and signings, Jay Crowder and Chris Paul and all of that to make the team that they have today. But it all doesn't occur unless they draft Booker and DeAndre Ayton and Mikkel Bridges uh, to and- lay the foundation of the team. All right, Andrew. So for my most interesting thing this week, I want to talk about the Mavs. But I want to frame this as part of the ongoing comparison of Trey Young and Luka Doncic. Mm. Obviously, the conversation around those two players who were traded for each other at the 2018 draft has significantly shifted in the last month or so. The conversation now seems to be a much more positive one as people are recognizing the greatness of both Luka and Trey. And even if you still prefer Luka over Trey, the decision to trade for Trey is no longer being talked about like this foundational franchise-altering mistake. Now, the reason for this shift in opinion is obviously because of the on-court play of Trey Young. He's been incredible. But there's another aspect to this comparison that has also changed, and that is the situation or environment that these two stars play in. Because a few months ago, if you had asked which player was in the better situation, I'd suspect most player would say Luka. Or most people would say Luka. Dallas is a great NBA market. Mark Cuban generally regarded as a good owner. Rick Carlisle, a consensus top 10 or even top 5 coach. Seemingly a great formula for long-term success. Meanwhile, a few months ago, the Hawks were in disarray. Travis Schlenk, his bold offseason, was looking like a huge failure. He filed, fired Lloyd Pierce after the Hawks went 14-20 and 20 to start the season. It seemed like Travis Schlenk had been unable to surround Trey with quality talent, and the roster felt like a couple seasons away from relevance, even in the best-case scenario. Trey was looking at a situation with a new coach, a GM fighting for his job, and an underachieving roster with limited upside. Well, we all know what's happened with the Hawks. (laughs) Meanwhile, let's take a closer look at the Mavs situation. Oh, no. Oh, no. Because the past two weeks have seen a complete upheaval in the Mavs org, that has seen the departures of Donnie Nelson and Rick Carlisle with the shadow GM, Haral Bob Volgaris, seemingly still in place. Based on reports, filling those departures will be Jason Kidd and Nike exec Nico Harrison. Now let's start off with positive. If you want to be positive about these hires, you could say that both Kidd and Harrison are well-liked by players throughout the league and that perhaps this will finally be the recipe that unlock, unlocks Dallas as a free agent destination something Dallas has never really been in the Mark Cuban era, despite being a top five media market with superstar players in Dirk and Luka. 
And I don't think it's a coincidence that Kid was the preferred choice of Damian Lillard in Portland or that Dame tweeted positively about the Mavs hiring of Nico Harrison on early Friday morning. In mm -hmm. fact, if you go back on YouTube, Nico Harrison can be seen as one of the first people Dame greets in the aftermath of his series-winning shot against OKC in the 2019 playoffs. Ooh. Kind of interesting. He's yeah. a Nike guy. Dame's an Adidas guy. Pretty interesting. Now, that's the positive spin on these decisions. Period, mm -hmm. in my opinion. <laughs> the for the end. negative spin... Oh, no. For the negative spin, I turned to a tweet from Greg Wissinger, editor at the King's Herald, a Sacramento Kings blog. Great follow on Twitter, at G-W-I-S-S-G-Wiss. If there's anyone who would know the red flags of front office dysfunction, it would be a Kings fan. And so I think we should listen closely. Because Greg tweeted out what he calls the Kangs checklist. In other words, the things an NBA team needs to do to achieve full Kangs, okay? I want to go through these. Number one... Give power to outside-the-box BS artists. Check. We have the well-documented influence of former gambler Haral Bob Volgaris in the Mavs front office, an influence that appears to have survived the bombshell story from the Athletics' Tim Cato. Number two, drive away successful basketball people. Check. Rick Carlisle, an almost universally respected and well-regarded coach, championship-winning coach, he would rather coach the Indiana Pacers than be tied to a generational star in Luka Doncic. Seems weird. Donnie Nelson, for all his faults, he was a GM who played a key role in drafting both Dirk and Luka, and who, by the way, by Mark Cuban's own admission, pushed hard for the Mavs to draft Giannis with the 13th pick in 2013, but Cuban wanted to trade down to free up space to chase Dwight Howard. Mm -hmm. Number three, surround yourself with friends from the good old days. Check, check, check. Let's see. We've got Dirk as an advisor, Michael Finley as the current vice president of basketball ops, Jason Kidd as the head coach, and reports that J.J. Barea and Jason Terry may be candidates to join Kidd's staff. Oh, no. Definitely checking off that one. Yeah. Number four, hire your coach before your GM. Now, this one is debatable depending on how you interpret the reporting on this. It's unclear whether... Kid was Nico Harrison's hire or a hire that Nico Harrison supported after the existing Mavs brain trust had already made a decision. And lastly, five, hire a former player from the good old days as GM. This is the only one that has not come to fruition. By all accounts, Nico Harrison is going to have the role of both GM and president of basketball ops, though Michael Finley is the vice president of basketball ops, essentially the number two GM. The point is, the Mavs are arguably going down a Kang's pathway. And in my opinion, and I've had a 10-minute conversation with Tim Cato on this very podcast, so I'm a Mavs insider now. These moves were made to accomplish two goals, Andrew. One, to continue Mark Cuban's desperate, to this point, failed pursuit of making Dallas a free agent destination. And two, to solidify and maintain Mark Cuban's influence over all basketball decisions. They did not bring in a basketball guy as their GM, president of basketball ops. Nothing here suggests that Mark Cuban will have any less of a role in the decision-making process going forward, which begs the question, what has really changed? And all of this is without even broaching the topic of A, Jason's Kidd's coaching resume, which is mediocre at best, and B, Jason Kidd's domestic violence charges from 2001s to which he pled guilty. Now, when this is brought up, people typically fall into one of two camps. One camp emphasizing the need for second chances, the importance of rehabilitation. The other camp taking a more hardline stance against the hiring of someone to this prominent of a position with a history of domestic violence charges. 
regardless of where you fall, I think most would agree that if there were one team that would or should seriously take that history into account, it would be the franchise that had a decades-long sexual harassment scandal that came to light in recent years. Yeah. Because if that history doesn't matter to the Mavericks, I think we can definitively state that having a history of domestic violence charges is officially not an impediment in any way to getting a head coaching job in the NBA. Mm. So in conclusion, kind of seems like the Mavs are going down a Kang's pathway. And meanwhile, the Hawks are in pretty good shape. Yep. So it appears that Luka Doncic was in turn selected by the Kangs. And we didn't he even was. know it. He was. <laughs> oh, yes, I like that. <laughs> okay, Andrew, oh, it's, time, it's time to celebrate some birthdays. Blow out the candles, get your cake, and eat it too. It's the birthday bash. It's your birthday. Somebody in here, it's your birthday. It's your birthday. Somebody in here, it's your birthday. It's your birthday. Everybody move like it's your birthday. Now, what we do each week, some, actually not every week, just the weeks when I remember to do it. <laughs> when is, we want to. Yeah. yeah, I look up guys who had had birthdays in the past week. I put two of them head to head. You can tell me which guy is younger. I've got five combos for you today. The first one, Andrew, who is younger? Danny Green, Thaddeus Young. I'll say Thaddeus Young is younger. That is correct. Thad turned 33 this week. Danny Green turning 34. What about Rudy Gobert, Jamichael Green? Ooh, that seems clear to me in my mind, but maybe I'm I, wrong. I thought you said who. Who? <laughs> <laughs> I'll say Rudy Gobert is younger. That is. That was probably the easiest one I've ever done for you. He turned 29. Jamichael Green was 31. Okay. Next, two rookies from the 2020 class, Saban Lee for the Pistons and Desmond Bain for the Grizz. Saban Lee is younger. He is. Saban Lee turned 22. Desmond Bain turned 23. All right, next, we got two. I don't know if one of them is a Hall of Famer, but, you know, close. Dikembe Mutombo, Del Curry. Probably thinking more of Del Curry's son, Steph. Yeah. Which of those guys is younger? I'll say Del Curry. I'll say Dikembe is younger. Dikembe is younger. He turned 55 yes. this week. Del Curry turning 57. Last question, Andrew. Who is the youngest out of these five players who all had birthdays this week? J.J. Redick, J.J. Barea, Raymond Felton, Darren Williams, Taj Gibson. So a lot of Mavs in there. J.J. Redick, J.J. Barea, Raymond Felton, Darren Williams, Taj Gibson. Say Taj Gibson. I don't really know. Well, of course you don't know. Why would you know that, Andrew? <laughs> first of all, you've gotten all four right this week. I know. So if you get this right, I'm... this would be your first clean sweep. Five in a row. That's why I'm going crazy over here. The youngest player in that group who turned 36 this week, all other guys were 37, was Taj Gibson. Andrew, yes! it was a clean sweep. Five in a Ooh. row. Wow. Yes. Yes. I was kind of surprised that J.J. Uh, Redick was 37. And also the same age as yeah. like Ray Felton and Darren Williams. Yeah, he just played in college for forever. I know. That's part of the deal. Didn't trick you, though. Uh, all right. Right after this, we are going to talk to our friend Chris Kirshner about the Atlanta Hawks and their superstar, Trey Young. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. I'd like to welcome Chris Kirshner to the podcast today. Chris covers the Hawks for The Athletic and is the man that confirmed how delicious the wings are at Magic City. Chris, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? And doing great. Uh, I can't, can't imagine I'm doing better than the Hawks are today. Uh, I look back, and the Hawks were 16-20 and 20 at the All-Star break, and now they sit up. We're recording this on Friday afternoon. They're, sit, they're up one nothing on the Bucks in the Eastern Conference Finals. How shocking has this run been to cover? Uh, very shocking. Um, you know, I, I was planning a vacation this week. Uh, <laughs> I was expecting to be on vacation. I did yeah. not expect the Hawks would be in the Eastern Conference Finals, uh, let alone up 1-0. Um, it's just been a, a crazy ride in, in the second half of the season since Nate McMillan took over, Bodan Bogdanovich coming back from injury in the second half of the season, shooting 45% from three, Trey Young doing Trey Young things. It's just been a, a crazy ride that I don't think any rational person following this team could have foreseen. I, I've asked several of the Hawks players in the cup in the past couple of days, you know, if they expected something like this, especially where they were in the first half of the season. And those guys said, no, um, Trey Young, maybe because cameras were in front of his face said, you know, he did see this coming, but I mean, I don't, I don't know how truthful that is. I don't, I don't think anybody yeah. could have seen this coming. And, and Trey has obviously been a huge part of this run. How much of his current success do you attribute to him improving as a basketball player versus Atlanta finally building a high-quality roster around him? Because there have been some people who have tried to like half-walk back their prior takes on Trey by saying that he's just gotten significantly better, while others say, no, he's always been this guy, it's just the team is better now. So what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I've watched every single game that Trey has played in the NBA so far, and um he's been this kind of player. It's just the fact that nobody watched the Hawks prior to the past couple of weeks. And now everybody's saying, Oh, look at, look at Trey. He's this phenomenal player. Whereas if you've been watching the Hawks over the past couple of years, you would know that Trey is this kind of player. And and he's really not much different than what we saw from really the first half of his rookie season. He struggled in in those first couple of weeks, but after that, he's really been on, on this level where, uh, you know, he's a really, really excellent player. So I, I think it's just the fact that the, the roster around him has gotten so much better. Even last year, he's having to play with Vince Carter, who's 42 years old and, and getting 20 minutes a, a game some nights. Uh, his center rotation last year was Alex Len, Bruno Fernando, Damian Jones. I just don't know what people expected of him when it came to uh, winning with the rosters that he was given in his first two seasons. 
I, it, it was just impossible just just because some nights he was playing with guys who are you know had had both feet out of the league essentially and they were just there to fill up uh, roster spots so it, it was it would have been uh incredible if trey could have won even 30 games with the rosters that he had and now that he has better talent around him we're seeing what he can do when uh he has guys who are fully capable of, of carrying offenses by themselves if, if he's not on the floor or or even if they're they're sharing the court with trey i think they uh you know the guys that they've had around him bogdanovich Gallinari, uh, Clint Capella anchoring the the middle of this uh, roster. I, I think it's gone. It, I think it's done wonders for really everybody on on this team. Yeah, and in addition to his incredible play, Trey has established himself as a personality in the playoffs. He's been shushing at the Garden, shivering in Philly, shimmying in Milwaukee. Uh, can you give us a sense of what Trey's popularity is like as a sports figure in Atlanta more broadly? and maybe what the popularity of the Hawks is like in that city? I mean, I think he's probably the most popular player in Atlanta right now. I think they're the most relevant team. The Braves, uh, you know, are struggling right now. And really Atlanta has been a, a baseball town since 1991 when that Braves team kind of mirrored what this Hawks team is doing. They were a young team. Uh, and, and they just caught fire and, and the city really embraced them. I think that's what we're seeing right now with this Hawks team. They're a young team that didn't have really any expectations to be where they are right now and, and being one of the final four teams in the NBA. And I think the city has really rallied around them. I, I do think that Trey kind of embodies the city of Atlanta just because of the fact that if you are living in Atlanta – and you're from here originally, you're probably disrespected by just what people say about your city. And Trey has been that kind of guy since he's been in the league. Everybody's really disrespected him in the basketball community, saying, you know, he's just not a good player. He puts up empty stats. Uh, they've created a roster where they're just trying to get Trey to score over 30 points per game a night just to say, hey, look at us, like we made the right decision by trading Luka Doncic on draft night. So I really do think that Trey has been embraced by Atlanta. Uh, they will fight for Trey. If you say something negative about Trey, they will they will try and find your address and, and tell you what they think of that. It's, that's just how uh, beloved he's been really since entering the league three seasons ago. That's awesome. So now shifting, though, to another player who had a great game one. In January, you and Sam Amick reported that John Collins had left a $90 million extension on the table from the Hawks. And after that news, the prevailing opinion was that he was likely gone either in a trade or as a restricted free agent. How do you think this playoff run has changed that calculus going forward in terms of Collins' future with Atlanta? Well, I think uh, the Hawks have shown that if Collins and Young are two of the building blocks of your roster, that you can win at a high level. Um, you know, you can make the case that the Hawks really only have one star. And, and what we've seen in the NBA is you need multiple stars to win. But with that being said, you have to have players who understand their roles and, and fit around the, you know, the stars that you're building around. And for Atlanta, obviously, that's Trey Young. And I do think that Collins has really done well in his current role. In the past couple of seasons, we've, we've seen him having to score 20, 25 points per game for the Hawks to really have a chance to win. 
he doesn't have to do that now just because of the fact that they have other guys now who can score. Bogdanovich can score. Obviously, Trey's going to score. Gallinari can score off the bench. So there, there are so many more options now where Collins doesn't have to be that number two option. He, he can score 15 to 17 points per game and do other things. He can space the floor. He's gotten really better defensively, which was a, a big question mark for him coming into the year. So I think if they end up re-signing him, it can work for the Hawks. It's just a matter of what Travis Schlenk, the general manager, wants to do. Does he want to go over the cap and, and try and re-sign everybody? Because they're, they're going to have to have some tough roster decisions coming up. Not only Collins, but you know Kevin Herter has played himself into some serious money over right. these past couple of months um, you know, with, with what he's done on both ends of the floor. People thought that he was going to be a, a, a huge liability defensively, but that's not really the case anymore. And he's shown that for, since you know the start of this season. So I think they have some interesting roster decisions to, to come. Uh, again, I, I think with what they've shown this year and, and not really anybody expecting them to be here, uh, you know, Schlenk has said that he doesn't have any qualms if this roster is back next year and, and it's the same just because, you know, they are ahead of schedule. But I think he also understands that in order to win a championship, you're probably going to have to get at least one more established superstar on the roster to go alongside Trey. Mm-hmm. So looking ahead, how would you rank the Hawks' young core? So let's just talk Collins, Herter, Hunter, Okongwu, and Reddish uh, in terms of how it's important for the Hawks' future success. I think it's really important because, like I was just saying, what we've seen in the NBA nowadays is if you don't have multiple stars, it's going to be difficult to win a championship. So mm-hmm. if if this is the roster that they're going to go with moving forward, you have to have one of these guys, maybe two of these guys, to really reach your, your true potential. I thought what we saw from DeAndre Hunter before he injured his knee earlier in the year I, I did think that he showed star p- uh, potential on both ends of the floor. Um, he, he was pretty clearly, in my estimation, the, the, the team's best player, and that includes Trey, in those first 20 games. Um, it, it's unfortunate that he's not able to be a part of this playoff run because, really, who knows um, you know, where this Hawks team could be with him mm-hmm. just because of the fact that they had um, a, a guy who's 6'8", can, can put the ball on the floor, get into the lane and, and score. And then you have him on the other end of the floor where he's guarding the opposing team's best perimeter player. Um, in, in the last series against Philly, he probably would have been matched up against uh, Tobias Harris. Harris didn't have a good good um, postseason uh, series against the Hawks, but he probably would have been that guy who, no matter who was uh, going off for Philly, he could have been that stopper. So, I think that he can be that guy who can potentially grow into that player. I don't know if I see it with, you know, Collins or, or Herter. I, I do think that they're really good um, players to have around the the stars that they want to build around here. But um, if I was to point to someone in particular who I do think that could be that kind of player, it, it is Hunter. And so tonight we're recording this on Friday afternoon. Tonight is game two. What are your prediction, predictions? Are Is there anything the Hawks can do to slow down Giannis? And then conversely, do you think there's any adjustments Milwaukee will make to try to limit Trey? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard for me to say the Hawks are going to win this one just because of the fact that if the Bucks go down too well, they're, they're in, in, in danger. Um, you know, if you go back to Atlanta where that crowd is going to be insane, 
the Hawks have never won an Eastern Conference Finals game before, and, and they've already uh, achieved that. This is the most successful team since the, the team moved to Atlanta in 1968. So that crowd is going to be electric. So the Bucks have to win tonight. And I, I don't see any – I shouldn't say I don't see any way that they, they don't uh, end up winning just because of the fact that this Hawks team has turned so many people into – believers um anytime you doubt this team they they just prove you wrong um so i think what the bucks should do is um i think they probably would have won that game easily the other night if they just made open shots um our, our colleague eric name who covers the bucks um you know said in, in his story after game one that 31 of their 36 three-point attempts were considered open or wide open so if mm. those shots fall wow. i mean it's it's a different game. Uh, I, I don't think the Hawks played particularly well defensively. I just think the Bucks didn't make shots. And when it comes to Trey, what we've seen from Milwaukee all season is that they they play in the drop scheme. They're going to allow Trey to make his floaters. Um, you know, if if they do go small, which I think they had success with in the second half, when Giannis was at the five instead of Brooke Lopez um, in the second half, Trey was three of eleven. So I think Bud is going to adjust to that. I don't think we're going to see Jeff Teague play. I mean, it, it would be an abomination if Jeff Teague is out there. Uh, once Teague was mm -hmm. out there and, and Young was on the floor, um, I mean, Young just cooked him. I think he scored like 10 points in a, a few minutes when, when Teague was on the floor. So I would assume that, um, you know, for game two, Bud is going to realize these things, that Giannis at the five is, is probably – a better option. At least he should. At least he should be playing more minutes um, than what we saw in Game One. So I think those are probably a, a couple of the adjustments that I would expect from the Buck side of things. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream Direct TV satellite free. Hey Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get Direct TV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream Direct TV over the internet now. Oh sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream Direct TV without a satellite dish. Visit DirectTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, it'll be fun to watch, and thank you so much for answering our questions, but it is now time to play Andrew versus The Beat, our weekly trivia show where Andrew goes head-to-head -head with a beat writer for an NBA team. Now, Andrew got off to a horrible start when we started this <laughs> podcast. Started off 0-11-1, but... He is currently on a four-week winning streak, bringing his record to 4-11-1. So this week, all the questions, this is the conference finals edition of Andrew vs. The Beat. All the questions will be about one of the four teams in the conference finals. How this works, Chris, we have eight questions. You will give me a number between one and eight that will correspond to a trivia question. It might be really easy. It might be really hard. You will have a chance to answer. If you get it right, you get two points. If you get it wrong, Andrew will have a chance to steal for one point. We'll go back and forth until all the questions have been answered. So to start us off, just give me a number between one and eight. 
Uh, let's go with two. Number two. Ooh, I think this might be the easiest question. We'll see. The Suns are currently up two games to one on the Clippers in the Western Conference Finals, led, of course, by Jay Crowder, who is no stranger to the Conference Finals. Name all the teams that Jay Crowder has led to the Conference Finals. Miami. That's correct. Uh, Dallas. That is incorrect, Andrew. You have a chance to steal. Can you name all the teams that Jay Crowder has led to the conference finals? So Miami is one. Correct. Phoenix is one. <laughs> do we can we have to do we have to name Phoenix? Yes, you do. <laughs> okay. I'll take that one. Utah. Utah. No. You no. both got it wrong. No, they didn't make it to the conference finals. Oh no! That's the easiest question. Oh no! The correct answer. I mean, you got two of them. The other two, though, the Cavs. And the Boston yeah. Celtics. Boston Celtics. Okay, so Andrew, one question down. Score is zero to zero. Where would you like to go next? Uh, let's go seven. Question number seven. There are currently two players tied for the league. Sorry, tied for the lead in most three pointers made during the 2021 playoffs with 50 three pointers. The two players are Donovan Mitchell and this player. So currently tied for the lead, most threes in the playoffs this year, tied for 50. Donovan Mitchell mm. and this player. Is it, Reg is it Reggie Jackson? Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. That is correct. It is Reggie ah. Jackson. 50 threes for Reggie Jackson. Okay, back to Chris. Six. Number six. Question number six. No team has seen a bigger drop in their three-point percentage from the regular season to the playoffs than the Milwaukee Bucks, who shot 38.9% in the regular season and are currently shooting 30.4% as a team in the playoffs. Which Bucks player has seen the biggest individual drop in three-point percentage? I'm going to go with Chris Middleton. Chris Middleton, that is incorrect. Andrew, you have a chance to steal. Is this... Gotta give me a Bucks player. Is this Drew Holiday? Drew Holiday! That is also incorrect, Andrew! <laughs> Would you believe, not thought of as a three-point shooter, but it's Giannis. Giannis shot 30.3% oh. in the regular season. He is down to 18.4%, an 11.9% drop. So the score Yikes. is still 2-0. Andrew, it is your turn to choose a number. Uh, number one. Question number one. Trey Young scored 48 points in game two on Wednesday night. Only three players in NBA history have scored 48 or more points in a conference finals game. Two of those players have accomplished the feat twice. Who are the two players who have scored 48 or more in a conference finals game twice? And for this one, I'm going to give you one point per correct answer. Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan seems like a good guess, but it's not. <laughs> It's wrong. He did score 47. He did. He was one of them. He scored 48, but his other one was 47. So, Chris, you have a chance to steal players who have scored 48 or more at least twice in a conference finals game. Wilt. Wilt Chamberlain. That is incorrect as well. The correct answer was, actually, now that you say Wilt Chamberlain, that does sound right. <laughs> it feels right, doesn't it? Yeah. 
that seems impossible that it wouldn't be Wilt. Because uh, I'm pretty sure he, like, averaged... Oh, you know what? He didn't average any too crazy of numbers. I'll look that up to make sure. The two names, though, LeBron James and Dirk. Dirk was the other name. Oh, LeBron Dirk. and Dirk. Okay, so it's still 2-0. We're back to Chris. While I look up that information on Wilt. Let's go with number four. Question number four. Did you know... The eight oldest rosters in the league all made the playoffs this season, which includes three of the four conference finals teams other than the Hawks. Of the teams that didn't make the playoffs this season, which team had the oldest roster? Golden State. Golden State. That's a very good guess. That is incorrect, however. Andrew, you have a chance to steal. Is this Houston? Houston Rockets, that is also incorrect. Would you believe that it was the Chicago Bulls? The Chicago Bulls. All right, Hmm. Andrew, back to you. Three questions Uh, left. Number three. Question number three. Which player currently on one of the final four rosters has played in the most career playoff games? Is this Rajon Rondo? Rajon Rondo! No, it's not Rajon Rondo, Andrew. Chris, you have a chance to steal for one point. He's on the current, one of the final four rosters. He's playing the most career playoff games of that group. Obviously, LeBron is number one. Serge? That is correct! What a great pull it was! Serge Abaka, 146 games. I didn't think anyone would get that, so that was very impressive. (laughs) I had to get one right. I had to get one. And now you have a chance to move ahead at this point because it is two to one, but it is your question. We have questions five and eight left. Let's go eight. Question number eight. Ooh, this is a great one. There are currently nine players in the conference finals who have played for at least two of the four conference finals teams at some point during their career. We're going to try to name them all. So how this will work, Chris, you'll give me a name. Then we'll go to Andrew, he'll give me a name. We'll go back and forth and see how many of them you get. So, Chris, I just need a name of a player who has played on at least two of the four conference finals teams at some point during their career. Jay Crowder. Jay Crowder is... No. Incorrect! Oh, wow, I actually thought he was on there. Okay, so Andrew, you can get a point if you can just name one guy. Chris Paul. Chris Paul is correct. So there's actually nine guys. P.J. Tucker, Torrey Craig, Jeff Teague, Marcus Morris, Lou Williams, Rondo, Gallo, and Tony Snell. Tony Snell. That is wild, huh? Yeah, a lot of guys. Although none of them have played for three of them. It's always just two. So, Andrew, final question. This is your chance, Andrew. You can wrap it up here if you get this right. Otherwise... Well, Chris can't beat you, but he can get closer. (laughs) Question number five. Trey Young has already had seven games of 30 points or more in these playoffs. The last time the Hawks made the conference finals in 2014-15, the highest scoring game by any Hawk during those playoffs was 30 points, and it only happened once. Who was the Atlanta Hawk with the 30-point game in the 2014-15 playoffs? Was it Kyle Korver? Kyle Korver, that is incorrect. Oh, okay. Chris, you have a chance to steal. 
I'm currently looking at the box scores for Wilt Chamberlain. He did have a 50-point game in, in, one of, in one of the conference finals. I'm seeing if he did it again. Was it Paul Millsap? Paul Millsap. Did Chris get it right? Did he pull closer by one point? He did not! Because the correct <laughs> answer, would you believe it, Jeff Teague! It was, was Jeff, Jeff Teague. Teague. <laughs> oh, no. Wow, so another victory for Andrew. Andrew, that makes it five weeks in a row for Andrew. All of a sudden, you're becoming like Stump the Schwab over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Chris, thanks for joining the show. Be sure to go read all of Chris's content on The Athletic. Chris, we really appreciate you, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Folks... We may have had a scoring discrepancy, our first scoring discrepancy in Andrew versus the Beat. Remember when Chris said Wilt Chamberlain as one of the players who had scored at least 48 points or more in a conference finals? Well, it turns out that back then they called them the division finals. And so when I looked it up, those games did not come up for Wilt Chamberlain, but it was true. Both in the (laughs) Eastern Division Finals and the Western Division Finals, Wilt Chamberlain scored 50 points, which means Chris would have gotten another point in that scenario, and he would have had a chance to tie if I had seen it in the moment. I'm obviously devastated by this. Uh, As a game master, you never want to be um, wrong about your (laughs) scoring system. I apologize to Chris, and I will just say that uh, Andrew's win this week officially in Jeopardy. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. Thanks so much for listening to our show. We're going to go to our review of the week on Apple Podcasts. If you want your review read, just leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure that you mention the Saturday Slam and Jam show in your review, and we'll read it on the show. Uh, This comes from Tommy Beaster 7 here in the U.S. He says, five stars. Just got done rocking our newborn back to sleep. I should be sleeping too, but instead I'm enjoying some coffee and my new favorite pod. Besides down to dunk fry pod, of course. Uh, thanks so much for leaving that review. And thanks so much for listening to our show today. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Enjoy your Saturday. Enjoy the playoffs. And we will talk to you guys again next week. <laughs>